What's up, humans? This is the Revenue Real Hotline. I'm your host, Amy Rahubchek. Big thank you for checking out the show. That was Peter Winnick, CEO of Thought Leadership Leverage, host of the Thought Leadership Podcast. And for those of you who have not yet been exposed to Peter, trust me when I say, friends, this man is a legend. And today we get into, you guessed it, how to position yourself as a thought leader. I started this podcast to ask the tough questions around how revenue is created, the questions no one else was asking, and to better understand the uncomfortable conversations that followed. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll bring you a revenue human shaking up the business of sales regardless of title. If you like what you're hearing, do tell a friend. I take that as the highest compliment. And with that, enjoy. Peter Winnick, welcome to the Revenue Real Hotline. I I'm honored to be able to host you and to have this like really what I'm what I hope and expect will be a very powerful conversation, sir. But no pressure. <laughs> and I prefer we had a lower bar, but now, now I feel like I've got to say something poignant and on you know memorable. But we'll see. Oh where we my go. gosh, that's so funny. Um, well, you know, it's I guess it's a good lead into the fact that there are there's only one rule on the revenue rail hotline, and that is that there are no rules. This is a judgment-free zone, a mistake-friendly zone, a tangent-friendly zone, and we keep it very, very real. Um, The target audience is the experienced tech seller. The theme of the show is conversations about uncomfortable conversations, right, in tech or tech sales, whatever, so we interpret loosely. Um, What else? We already talked about the last 10 minutes. And I generally, I do a blurb about people at the beginning of the episode. So we can just assume that everyone's kind of been introduced into like who you are and maybe a little bit of our, our backstory. Okay. So I wrote down a few things. I mean, obviously I want to talk about thought leadership, right. And the business model, like fully clearly, right. That's what we're going to talk about. But I, um, I wrote down a few things that we could possibly talk about, right. To start. And I'm going to read that list back to you, and then you choose where you want us to begin. Oh, by the way, I just finished listening to your episode with uh, Tom Peters. Are you? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I know that was pretty cool. Peters, that is like it doesn't get much cooler than that. Okay, but anyway, so Mike, that was a cool one. Yeah, that was a cool one. Okay, so my uh, my list uh, is obviously thought leadership leverage, right? So that business and all the work that you do. I'm, I'm. There's our overlap, right? So I listened to your first. I think it was episode 15 with Andy Paul, right? So listener friends, um, Peter and Andy go way back, and that is how I came to be introduced with with Peter. There is the four elements of thought leadership, right? So when when we spoke last week about so ideas, platform, content, and offerings, right? Just kind of unraveling what is thought leadership, right? I guess we could start with that too, right? What's the definition? Then there's of course your story, which I'm dying to hear, and and I'm hoping that that's what you vote for. So again, it's the business, the thought leadership leverage the podcast, right? We could include that. Then it's the definition of thought leadership, right? To Peter Winnick the expert, the resident expert on thought leadership, the four elements. So ideas, platforms, content, and offering. And then of course your story. Well, I feel like it should be like a game show. (laughs) So I'll, I'll, I think we can start with my story. And then when we get bored with that, go to some of the other things. 
So yeah. the, the gist of my story is, you know, there were two pieces that I thought were totally different. So I, you know, uh, in my younger days, always entrepreneurial, always building things, you know, going back to like, even before businesses, you know, the kid that had, you know, five little side hustles going on before Gary V called it a thing. <laughs> we just called it working our asses off and being, being entrepreneurial and whatever. Um, so I was always entrepreneurial, started my first business. Um, I think I my first real business. I think I was 22. So, uh, you know, of course, underfunded, knew nothing, uh, whatever. And, um, so I was always, always passionate about business. That's number one. Number two, there's then there's the other side that was like, we didn't call it thought leadership. We just called it, you're a nerd. Like you read a lot, like you, you know, you probably suck at sports. So what else do you do? Right. So you read a lot, you figure things out, you know, whatever. There were these things back in the 1800s called magazines. They would come with some frequency in a mailbox. Remember mailboxes, not the digital one. It was right. And um, what I realized after a while was, wait a minute. Okay. As a very young, very inexperienced, very incompetent entrepreneur, I had a problem. There's probably someone else had a version of that problem before. And uh, if I can figure out wherever they documented it, I might be able to learn something from it. So I was an avid reader, magazines, articles, books, et cetera, et cetera. Then fast forward like a zillion years later, uh, at the time, so this is a little bit after uh, 9-11, so the the original, not the anniversary, um, I was a COO at a boutique consulting company downtown New York, like two blocks from ground zero. And the business that we had, um, I was recruited in by a woman that founded it, who was very entrepreneurial herself, you know, and, and the mission was to, to help start up small businesses, people first coming out there, uh, figure out their businesses. How do they grow? How do they scale it? How do they leverage it? Um, should they even be in business? Right. And during my, my tenure there, um, what we found is oftentimes people would come in and what they really needed was turnaround work. Like they'd already made some really bad mistakes, been in business too long and needed to either figure out, is there value here uh, in this? Can we change the business? What can we do? And we were like, we didn't want to be in that business. We like building things and watching them grow. And I always equate the turnaround business of like, there's a difference of going to your cardiologist and him giving you some advice and you take that advice, you can live a longer life. Or him sort of looking at you going, yeah, go down the hall and like, you know, Fred, the dentist is going to pull the gold out of your teeth because you're not going to be here long. Like, I don't want to Fred the dentist. So, um, so we partnered with a turnaround firm and they were really, really good. Like they were really good at, they would be brought in by boards or, or, you know, senior teams and say, Hey, something's broke. Can you guys fix it? Right. And so my, one of my, my buddy that ran the turnaround firm called me one day and said, Hey, let's go have a drink. Um, That's always a great way to get my attention. <laughs> so <laughs> no, I don't know anything about that. So like, uh, you're just going to, I'll have to, you know, take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we go to have a drink and said, Hey, here's the deal. So we had this client, uh, global communications consulting company, and we've been embedded there, meaning him and his team, three, three four people for a year. And they actually bought us and we're now going to run the business. And, you know, we thought you'd want to come on board. And I'm like, I, global communicate, like, what is what does that even mean? And I like the guys. I like these guys a lot and I respected them and they were really fun. And I'm like, what is this business? They're like, yeah, it's, you know, they basically train uh, large entities in presentation and communication skills. So some of their clients are, you know, JP Morgan and City. I'm like, that sounds like the most boring, like I would never effing do that. That just sounds boring. I don't sit through training programs. 
So he's like, okay, I get it. And then he's like a week later, let's have another drink. Cause like, like any good determined entrepreneur, you know, a blatant no yeah. doesn't mean no. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the second drink, not the second drink, but the second round of drinks. I was like, all right, maybe this will be interesting. This could be kind of fun because these guys are interesting. You know, companies 40 years old, they're doing 50, 60 million in revenue. They do have some things going for it, blah, 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 blah. So it was during that time that I actually realized that the business this entity was in was based on a book that somebody wrote in like 1968, like 40 something years before. And then they created derivative programs from it. I'm like, oh, this is like IP. This is like they sell IP. And we did the turnaround and it was wildly successful. And then um, from there, I, I left. Uh, and the reason I left is, is a mildly funny story. I was on my way in, into my office in the city one day. And on the way in, I get a voicemail and it says so-and-so and so-and-so. And, and the company is based in Australia, so I won't do my bad Australian accent. So-and-so and so-and-so will no longer be with the firm as of, you know, eight o'clock this morning. So those are my, the third so-and-so in that sentence was usually me. I'm like, okay, maybe I didn't hear it, but like it was the three amigos. Why are they firing two out of three of us? Now I'm kind of annoyed. I got to go into the city to get fired. This could have been a voicemail. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah, could have yeah, been yeah. a phone call from something else today, whatever. So I go in and they, there's a dude there. They fire my two friends who were president and CEO. And I was like number three. And there's some strange dude there who used to be with the firm five years ago who's like, hey, I'm Mark. I'm now the president. I'm like, okay. Hey, I'm Peter. I'm now the Pope. Like, you know, like whatever. And, <laughs> yeah. and um, the promise I made to him, he's like, they really liked me because I was putting the numbers on the board. The problem is not that I didn't like them, but I didn't, I just didn't like the culture. I didn't like a lot of the people. I like, it wasn't what I signed up for. Right. So I, and I was honest with him about it. I'm like, listen, I will give you 90 days to see if this is a fit. My gut right now is it's probably not, but you seem like you're, you're a good guy. And your hair is definitely on fire. Um, I'll give you 90 days and we can either part friends or not at that point. Like we'll see. Um, you know, like 90 days later, I'm like, okay, this is like, this is not where I want to be. And at that point I partnered with uh, Keith Ferrazzi as we were launching Never Read Alone. And the conversation I had with Keith was, this is just as the book was launching is like, wow, that seems like a great piece of content. It seems like a great book. What's the underlying IP? How are you going to scale it and leverage it and monetize? He's like, I don't know. You can figure that out. So that was um, <laughs> after that. So I, you know, I think the moral of the story is I really learned that the two sides of the coin ultimately became one, which is what I've been doing ever since. It's like, okay, entrepreneurial, using resources, creative problem solving, whatever, but doing that strictly on things that have a thought leadership basis to it. So, so. I have only an underwhelming story, like in the in the history of like backstories, like it's probably not even a top ten. I don't know about that because I like I like moments of origination. Like I see, I don't admit this in in civilized circles, Peter, but I see in graphs, right, bell curves in particular. Speaking of, I was did a lot of entertaining while at Westlaw and Thomson Reuters. And there was one time where one of my colleagues were out at a bar, we're waiting for somebody. And he's like, Amy, I swear to God, if you draw one more bell curve on a bar nap, like I'm leaving and you're not invited to any more parties. But anyway, to hear points of origination, um, that gives me a lot of context around uh, trajectories and trend lines and how long people have been at something. And also you've been at it for so long. And that just means I'm old. <laughs> well, you know, it's this is a judgment-free zone, remember, Peter? And we we don't we're no, right. we don't participate in ageism around here either. But I well, so here's I have ADHD, which means it's well. By the it's way, one, you, and me, you and me both, so you're not that. Yeah, exactly. So it's 
it's not uncommon for women though, to not be diagnosed as, as a young in, right. As a child, because there are symptoms don't look similar to those of, of men. My, so I, I went to school at American university. I was pure grants, right. I won this model Congress competition, but I almost didn't graduate my senior year from skipping so many like homerooms. Right. And so I, um, I had learned how, or I had to learn how to teach myself, right? Because I wasn't able to stay present in the classroom or often I was learning so quickly that I would get bored. And I have one of my, uh, there's a, one of my favorite episodes I talk about in college. I read somewhere that I, you, like your sense of, uh, what your sense that is most closely tied to memory is your sense of smell. And so in my infinite, like, you know, college brain wisdom, I realized like I had, I looked on my, my, my nightstand and I had all these like Victoria's Secrets body sprays were all the rage, right. In 2001, right. so right around. And so maybe I'm dating myself, but I, uh, <laughs> I assigned a smell per class. And when I was studying that class, well, whatever. So this is how long I too have been hacking learning. When I decided to go into sales, I gave up listening to music for a year so that I, when I was driving around to sales calls, all I was listening to in my car was books and business books and how to sell. And I fell in love with thought leadership. I fell in love with not just ideas, but how those ideas move and, and are sold. And I remember taking like a Tom Hopkins course, one of those multi-day ones back in the day. And he, or maybe it was a Robert Kiyosaki with his rich dad, poor dad, but he spoke about how like all these authors would come to him and say like, you know, I want to, I want to do what you did. I want to sell my book. Like I'm an author, I'm an author. And he would point at his, on the blurb on his cover of the book. And it'd say, it's that he's a best selling author, right? So bringing it back to, it's not just writing the book. It's how to sell it and socialize these concepts. And so to hear now, fast forward for me 20 years, right, to participate with you and with Bill and with with Andy and to see the intention that goes into the business model. And I, I mean, it just like broke my mind, actually, in many ways. And I'm going to end this tangent with like we talked about how I'm de decorating the office. Uh Oh, what do we have props? So my favorite scene, you see what this is? I mean, well, it's a silver spoon. It's a, or a, spoon. Mask, but okay. it's yeah. a massive spoon. My favorite scene. Well, I was say, if, there's a, if you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, that one is far too large. Can you imagine? No, like that would, I didn't even think about that. Now I'm going to have to re recalibrate my idea. No, my favorite scene in the matrix is that like, it's, you know, there is no spoon. It's, it's not the spoon that bends, it's your mind. And so right. I want to put the spoon on the wall, the massive spoon on the wall that, which is, does not indicate that I've been like, you know, raised in a certain way or that my color of my blood is, is a certain thing. However, um, I just, I respect it. I respect it. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And I've been consuming books for a long time. And now to like learn all the things that I didn't know and realize that I'm at the beginning of this like learning curve here. I'm just, I'm very thankful for the content that you're producing and the work that you do on how to um, sell ideas and how to you know, make an impact in a, in a sustainable way. And I sustainable in this case equals monetize. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But let, let me touch on sort of something that you said. So one of the traits of, I would say almost all of my clients 
is they're lifelong learners. They might not use that language or word or whatever. They're curious. They're always trying to crack the code on something. They're always trying to figure something out. So number one, if you're a lifelong learner, that's a great thing. But you know, you made a point earlier that I think was critical. There's a book by a guy named Josh Waitzkin called The Art of Learning. And if you ever watch the movie, The Making of Bobby Fischer, that's the story of Josh Waitzkin's life. He was this chess prodigy uh, downtown New York as a kid, whatever, whatever. But the gist of the art of learning, and it's a really, really good book, is that you need to learn how you learn, right? So there's all this learning theory. There's all this, you know, I'm a kinesthetic learner. I'm visual. I'm audio. I like to read. Da, da, da. Like, I read a book, two, maybe three books a week. I hate audio books. They're just not my jam. Like, for other people, they love them. So I know when someone says to me, oh, you know, like, you should go check this out on audiobook. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I just... I don't like it. It's not that it's good or bad. Is that because you enjoy that? That makes me better than you or worse than you. But yeah. I think the trick is most people don't know how they learn. And what we remember is the worst crap from school, whether that was elementary school, middle school, you know, like I, you know, I was the kid that had a, probably a touch smarter than average with no patience and a touch of ADD. So that's, that's like a formula to get in trouble. Like that's a formula to get into a lot of trouble. The good <laughs> news is, is, is which, which I did is back in the stone age, when I was a kid, they literally would place you in grade school, lower, middle, or bottom. That's what, or lower, middle, or top. So you knew, and I was always on the top, but like, you knew, like now everybody's equal and it doesn't really work like that. If you were in the slow class, you're in the slow class. If you're in the middle class, whatever. And if you're the high class, whatever. So really, really interesting, right? Like, like, and I don't know how they made that determination. You know, mm -hmm. was it that, you know, the teachers pick straws or whatever the case was. But I think it's really important to figure out how you learn because you might have friends that are avid readers and can sit there for 10 hours or they download a this or they watch a TED talk. But I would think if everybody spent a little bit of time figuring out how they learn best, and sometimes we do that by figuring out what are our worst learning experiences. Like for me, it was the yeah. like ridiculous lectures as an undergrad where you're sitting in a room with 600 people and some ancient prof that you can barely see over the horizon is like taking out their yellowed notes. And I'm like, that could have been a PowerPoint. Like why I could have, like, I'm not getting anything out of this. So what can I do to get in trouble? <laughs> we would have gotten along for, uh, swimmingly, right. Peter. I could, I could sense it right now. Um, I used to like- You had better things. tools. We, this is like pre-internet. Like, like you could doodle and like whatever, but like you know, we didn't have devices to, you know, maybe your beeper went off. That was about <laughs> it. <laughs> so. I, you know, it's, it's, it is an excellent point though, because so I sold for 10 years and then I, I did, I had a startup, we were acquired, um, very sexy exit and then go to market consulting right out in San Francisco yep. and then back to sales, tech sales, but in a sales enablement capacity, right? So about sure. seven years ago, I pivoted to adult learning and, but at a, like a, a professional level where, you know, you, I started to research learning theory and learning styles. And I always, um, to your point was aware of how I learned. And I want to come back to that, like for, for our listeners, right. How can they start to unravel how they learn once they figure out what didn't work? And I'm totally with you, by the way, on, you know, I think one of the greatest, <sighs> tragedies of the of our education system is that the frame that it's something that happens to you and it ends at a certain point right like i'm going to learn while i'm in school and then once i graduate i'm done learning right and so that's a, the mindset that a lot of people um carry over 
but anyway, but the point is that I, I guess maybe I was lucky because I had to learn how I learned, but how would you like, I mean, I, I started to say about sales enablement, like where I think short form, I think long form, I think reading, I think audio, I think um, whatever. But then there's also like all the things about retention, right? So the learning pyramid and engaging multiple different senses. And and for me, like now when I was building sales enablement uh, departments and programs, my job was not done until the knowledge that I brought to the table, skills or knowledge. And we're talking tech skills or like tech tools, uh, a product launch, um, hard and soft skills, right? Um, my job was not done until the knowledge was retained at an 80% level at scale. And so that is what I started to measure, right? Learning indicators and paying attention to those things. However, it when I contrast that, with the current state of most training initiatives, right? And and those success metrics, right? How many people attended? What was the little emoji that we gave uh, at the end? We're going down, yeah, a, a place where, listen, the, bo- the bottom line is your A-team never winds up in training, full stop. And, and that's reflected in almost every training and development entity at the Fortune 500 level. Like when was the last time, do you know of any CEO that came from training? It just doesn't happen. Right. It's, it's, they're good people and not bad people, but they're by and large B and C players doing B and C work in a risk averse world, resource constrained, blah, 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 blah. Right. And, and, and the, the modus operandi is, you know, how am I not going to get fired? Because we need to do things radically different around here, but radical change agents don't find themselves in training. Well, so it's not, they don't stay, could try it. Right. But they don't stay well, long because their, their you know, hands be- are tied. Yeah, or, or they'll be organ rejected or tissue rejected, whatever it's called, within a short right. period of time because everybody else is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, oh, yeah, we got, here's the smile. Everybody loved it. We got smiley faces. It must work, right? So what would you say to our listeners who are interested in investigating how they learn, right? After they think about like those bad experiences and that teacher that told them that they were a bad writer and they carried that with them until their, yes. their late 20s, like speaking, I'm asking for a friend, right? But how would you, how, how would you, what would you say to our listeners that are interested in like getting serious about their own learning and learning better? Yeah. So, well, first off, I think any, any salesperson that, that's not serious about their own learning is not going, you know, th- there's a reason that we've got, you know, 50% or below average, right? Like guess, guess where they probably fall. That would be a hypothesis, but I, I would argue that the lifelong learners and the people that have cracked that code are probably sitting more on the on the top quartile than the bottom. All right, right? fair point. Okay, so, continue. Right. So I I think that um, you know the way that you, and there might be some trial and error. There might be some intuition. You might start with the negative and say, "Oh my God, I hate dot dot dot." You know, long form lectures. I don't like reading books. I okay because you don't like something might mean now it could be I don't like reading books as you've only read crappy books. Or it could be, it's just not my jam. Like, I don't like sitting quietly hour or two at a time, like whatever. I actually do get a lot out of watching a TED talk. Okay, that's cool. That's a great place to learn. You know, so I, I think it's just figuring out the format, the modality. There's a couple of variables. What's the format? What's the modality? What's the content that excites me the most, right? Um, who are, 
who's out there that I admire as an author or a thought leader and why? Um, what are the best experiences I've had with learning? And it doesn't have to be technology or sales or whatever. And what about that experience was was fun for me? Like some, you know, if you think about, oh, I I took this cooking class and I really liked it. Why? You know, and why, why? Well, the why is because it's tactile, because I can see the you know short-term benefit of, you know, at the end of the class, I had a tray of cookies that were great, right? Like so, oh, so you got the feedback. So you need feedback, you need short form you know, you need to get your hands dirty, whatever, um, because I can explain to you, you know, what the experience of baking cookies are, but that's a whole different game than being in a room and the smell and the visceral and they come out and they're warm and they're chewy. You can't compare the two, right? So it's experiential. So I, I think it's it's just figuring that all out and not trying to force yourself to, you know, listen, if, if you don't like kale, you don't like kale. Like there's only so many ways you can try it. And ultimately, you're going to come to the conclusion that like, you know what, I would just prefer the Brussels sprouts. So it's okay to just prefer the Brussels sprouts. I mean, that was judgment free zone. Do we just ding kale? Do I need to apologize to kale? No, I fucking hate kale. Okay, so I loved your example. (laughs) And you're allowed to curse on the show. I'm not a huge kale fan, so I feel very validated right now. Um, I would also add listeners that when you there's four phases of learning, right? The competency quadrant. Um, unconscious incompetence, step one, right? This is a wonderful, pleasant place to be also known as ignorance is bliss phase two, right? Conscious incompetence. This is where it's like staring in the mirror of truth, where we are very, very much aware of all the things that we, we don't know. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to be in phase two. It continues, obviously conscious competence, unconscious incompetence, but phase two is brutal. There are things, friends that we can do to expedite, uh, the amount of time that we spend hanging out in phase two, and that is to rip off the bandaid, right? So just using cold calls as an example, you can do a hundred cold calls over the course of a year. That would be a shitty way to learn because the slow, painful way, um, or you could do it in the in a matter of a day and just rip off that damn bandaid. So that's another one. All right. So, Peter, I want to pivot us here to now like thought leadership, but not just like thought leadership of yesteryear. I'm curious about the trends and where we're going. Um, specifically, I think about the changes in learning style, right? And micro learning, and not to say that the brain has adjusted per se, however, micro learning, right? Real time application, um, very experiential. And the fact that I have a need right now to learn how to change a tire, right? Cause I can't, I don't have AAA or whatever. Um, so I'm going to do what everybody else on the planet does. And I'm going to whip out my phone, pull up a YouTube video, watch it once, maybe twice, watch it while changing the tire. So this is, it's like an on-demand model, smaller bite-sized yeah, pieces. So, so let me let me split that question in two. So there's two things you have to be thinking about, or I, I think you need to be thinking about when it comes to sort of trends and learning. There's the content, right? So content and thought leadership in and of itself, there's sort of two types. There's evergreen, right? So there's leadership, there's management, there's, you know, there's certain things that we we just all need to learn at various stages in our career right? And you can go deeper as you go further or whatever, but there's some, there's, there's the block and tackle stuff that one needs to learn, right? Um, and that sort of doesn't change. And then there is thought leadership that runs sort of a parallel track to the business cycle, right? So uh, I don't know if anybody remembers of this. I do because I, I follow these things. So it's like nerd anonymous admission. So in 2006 and 2007, something like 40% of the best-selling business books 
uh, were on the subject of what? Your theme music, like do do do, like what what was what was jamming in two thousand six, two thousand seven in business books? That question is to me. I'm I'm yeah. thinking um, two thousand seven, so that's two years out of college. Um, yeah, for some, <laughs> I know. I'm trying to. I I was just I I don't know. I don't know. Um, I happiness. It was the happiness project. Happiness. Okay. Happiness. Myth of hat. They were like. Go Google. There's a million books on happiness. In, and, and, and these are not self-help books. These are business books. The Myth of Happiness, The Happiness Project, The Happiness Way. Da, 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 da. And then you say, how oh, that's interesting. So it's sort of as a period piece, what the hell is going on? What's going on there? Well, what we know in 2008, the market crashed. So now let's put two and two together. So in 2006, 2007, everyone's fat and happy. You know, we're at full employment. They're making money. They're taking more money out of their houses they have any right to. They're spending that money on, remember Hummers? Remember the pools, big yeah, like, pools, right? new Hummers, pools, yeah. the, the third cruise, the third vacation. So mm-hmm. everybody's happy, 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 happy. And then the proverbial shit hits the fan uh, with the market crash of 08. So from 08 to 10, maybe 11, mm-hmm. you know, now we have a new thing, grit, resilience, you know, <laughs> reinvention. Of course it makes sense, right? Because we couldn't keep doing what we were doing. So we had to be gritty, you know. And by the way, you couldn't give away happiness books because everybody was living a country song of my, you know, my dog died, my wife left me and someone took my house. You know, everyone was living the same country song. Happiness, that's really funny as Repo Man shows up and, you know, takes your Ferrari out of the driveway. So you have to be cognizant that from a thought leadership perspective, there's a cyclical nature and an evergreen nature. And sometimes you got to figure out where you want to play. Sometimes you get lucky. Like there's a couple of folks that I know that had books on work from home being released in uh, the first quarter of 2020. They didn't know COVID's happening and that was going to be the hottest topic ever, ever. That would have been a mildly interesting topic to a niche audience of work from home. Well, come you know March of 2020 and then for the following, you know however long we've been in this silly thing is, um, work from home is a pretty important topic, right? You know, how do you maintain, right now the, the hot yeah. trends, if you will, are um, diversity and inclusion in a very, very different way post-George Floyd than what it was before. Um, work from home, uh, maintaining culture in a, in a remote workforce, and mental health is totally, um, it used to be a don't ask, don't tell. Like mental health for most companies was, okay, well, you know, if you think Sally's going to jump off the bridge, we have a number you can call and they'll hopefully convince her not to. But now the boundaries have changed. And as a leader, and this is where people are struggling and there's opportunity, leaders and managers are going, wait a minute, what was not appropriate for me to say a year or two ago, hey, how are you feeling mental health-wise? Two years ago, most people would have been offended by that question, ran to HR and says, oh, they think that I'm dot, 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 whatever. We don't have the language and the framework uh, to address those issues now. I think we're just, it's, it's changing. I don't know where the dust is going to settle. To me, that's an opportunity, right? Is there a, an experienced business person with a psych background that can go in and say, okay, managers, here's the new rules of engagement. You know, like, you know, if, if you if you were to watch sort of the equivalent of sexual harassment videos from 1983, they'd be what not to do today. <laughs> like, you know, they were still like, you ever watch Mad Men? Like, this is not the 1400s, it's the 1960s. And everybody's honey, sweetie, sit on my lap and get me a cocktail in the office. The, the behaviors that didn't raise eyes on that show as you're watching it, if you attempted that today, you know, not only would you lose your job, you'd probably be arrested, canceled. Yeah, you'd be canceled. Your ass would be canceled. Everybody would know about it. Okay. So this is interesting because I didn't expect this conversation to go here, but here we are. Um, 
Yeah. So, well, one, the episode that just published today, this wasn't it. It's about my book, the book I'm working on. Um, but the episode that just published today was with Shelton Banks, who is the CEO of Rework, um, one of the founders of Sales for the Culture, right? And so we had a spirited conversation about diversity and exclusion and inclusion, whatever. But more interestingly, or more, uh, more to the point, um, operating title for my book is called Sell Well, right? Sell Well is in wellness. And I have a, a, a big part of my story has to do with mental health. And so you're speaking to, to my heart and, and my love language about that. And I can't wait to go back and edit and like extract all those words. But I guess, so let's, let's pivot here because I'm sure I'm not the only one that's thinking about books and thinking about writing a book and what that trajectory looks like um, from, you know, ideation to monetize. But um, I mean, unless you have any. Here's the deal. So I have been told by more than one person over the years that I've talked more people out of writing books than anybody they know. And that doesn't mean I'd say don't write a book. That's not what I tell people. Occasionally I've told people that, but in general, <laughs> it's like, okay, everybody starts with, or not everybody, lots of people say, I want to write a book, I want to write a book, I want to write a book. Okay. That's like me sitting here 25 pounds overweight going, you know what? The New York City Marathon's coming to town in a couple of weeks. I think I'm going to do that. You know, somebody that knows anything about running would say, all right, Chubby, have you done a mile on the treadmill? Maybe a 5K, maybe a 10K. Like you don't start with a marathon because the odds of you completing that well and that being a positive experience for you are going to be pretty low. Now, could some people their first day running it be a marathon? I guess. And it ain't me, right? So to me, the thing, book becomes a proxy. So the first thing I would do is sort of peel away the layers of the onion. Why are you writing this book? Well, one reason might be intrinsic. One of the reasons I'm on this planet is to put the book out. Great. It could be a forcing mechanism to get my ideas tight and concise and clear. That's great. But let's not conflate sort of the intrinsic with the extrinsic. So if you're writing a book because, hey, if all I get out of this process is it'll be tight, it'll be clear, and I know I have to give birth to this thing, then yeah. go forth, go forth and write it, right? But if you're writing a book and you're pretending it is a business like many, and I'm not saying you, Amy, like, okay, let's be really clear. Do you know exactly who you're writing this for, right? Um, do you have any idea how you're going to sell and market it? Because by the way, there isn't a public, you know, if you're going to be an author, congratulations, you're now the SVP of sales and marketing of the book that you're writing, no matter how you publish, self-publish, independently publish, whatever, 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 who are you selling it to? Why is anybody going to buy it? And, and you know, you mentioned attention. Um, I read lots of books because I enjoy them because it's the business I'm in. And um, what I don't like to do, I don't mind wasting 20, 30 buck, buck, bucks on a book that's eh, because I can just stop reading it. What I do mind is wasting six hours of my life, right? So what's the teaser? You mentioned short form. Before you write the book, what are the short form pieces that you can put out there to tease, not to tease people, to give people a sense of, you, you should be using technology as your beta test. Because once the book, book is out, there's no beta. It, that puppy's, that's done. So how do you know that whatever you're going to put in the book, because let's assume you're the worst judge of what people will like that comes out of your brain. Because if you work with that assumption, you're going to be right more than you're wrong. How have you tested your hypotheses? How do you know people like this, whatever they are, your target market, this resonates with? Then you got to write a good book. Good luck with that. Then you got to figure out how to market and sell it. Then you have to realize that even if this book is a wild success, unless it's by the standards of you know, Malcolm Gladwell or something that sells millions, 
all that book did is introduce you to a new uh, group of folks. What is the product? What is the path that you want them to go down? So book is step one. It's like opening a retail store. And I walk in and there's one thing on the shelf. I'm like, oh, this is cool. I guess I'll grab that. But I have no reason to come back. Like there's, I bought the thing. Like it's an ice cream shop that sells one flavor. Why would I go back there? So those are some things to think about. Oh my God, that was brilliant, Peter. That was brilliant. I was, I just, I was unraveling John Acuff's um, launch strategy for soundtracks and companion courses was a, just a phrase that they used um, that I had never heard it phrased like that. Of, of course, they were heavy on the challenges as well, which I'm a massive fan of, but that was fucking smoking. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Yeah, but, okay. but so even companion courses, you know, that's a tactic, right? So that well, is it's just one point. option. It's, it's no, another no, no, thing but, on the shelves. No, it's not another thing on the shelf. Oh, okay. Companion courses. And I'm like, okay, if you're going to do a companion course in the way that like an ACOF or somebody suggests, you've already made a decision that you didn't realize, which is with your, you're in the B2C business and you're going to sell those individually to a bunch of people. That's great. That might work for you if your name's, you know, Gary V, but if you're going to be in the B2C, you know, okay, what's the customer acquisition cost and what's the lifetime value? Oh, I don't know. Okay. If you don't know, stay out of that business. Right. Most people lose their asses in, in, Oh, I'm going to do a course and it goes along with the book and you know, whatever. Okay. Well, if a hundred thousand people buy your book, which they won't because the average business book sells 1300 units and 10% of those hundred thousand people. Oh wait, what if it's, but we made the list. We made the list. Look at all these lists that we made. (laughs) Well, if it's not a hundred thousand, it's 1300 and 10% buy your course. That's 13 people. Okay. And you're going to sell it for $39. Okay. How much are you going to lose on that? Like, that's cool. So you, you made 1200 bucks. Congrats. Like, that's fantastic. Listeners, you see why I like Peter a lot? Why he's on the show? Because it's just like, ah, man, I love, I love telling it like it is, Peter. Um, okay. I have to learn to do that. You have to teach me how to do that. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> okay. So what is your favorite book launch that you've worked on? Oh, I can't. I mean, that's like asking your favorite. I can't do that. So, All right. I mean, so like what, what's the most. Actually, I, I, I don't have favorite book launches because book launches are just marketing. It's just a piece of it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some, I mean, things that I've seen that have been really, really cool over the years that I, okay. that I, that I admire and respect is um, Tony Say, who just passed away uh, a year or two ago. Less, I think it's a year, less than a year. Um, so Tony's backstory is, which is, this is a good model if you're going to write a book write a book called Delivering Happiness based on this billion-dollar shoe company that you built that you just sold to Amazon, who's the world's biggest bookstore. So step one, do all that. Because everybody's like, oh, I'm going to do be another Tony Say. I'm like, okay. So Tony did the Delivering Happiness tour mm-hmm. where they literally had a bus, like a tricked out, you know, think like rock and roll bus or whatever. And they had the Delivering Happiness crew going out to 20 or 30 cities with all sorts of chocks, like these delivery happiness t-shirts and books. And Tony would go out there and speak. It was, it was really, really cool and badass at the time because it was the antithesis of how do you launch a business book? Like you don't put a bunch of cool kids out on a bus popping out t-shirts and having this sort of crazy out there dude talking about happiness that came from a call center of an e-commerce some company that sells sneakers that nobody buys online, right? Like that yeah. was just acquired by the biggest company in the world. So that was really cool. I mean, the other things that are cool I've seen from a creative yeah. standpoint, sometimes people will do a book launch event, which is kind of, the ROI is kind of crappy, but it's something that's aligned with who they are. So an ex-military person doing something at the Intrepid Museum is cool. 
um, get I, I cool to me is creative. Like, how do you create the movement? How do you get it out there? How do you how do you get people to be engaged? Because usually what will happen when you write a book is people start letting their friends and colleagues know. And they're like, that's great. Let me know what I can do. And then there's no follow up. Oh, let me know what I can do. All right, Amy, I know you have a pot. This is what I know about Amy. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's three things I'm going to ask her to do. And it's not come over my house and paint like easy things for Amy that would mm-hmm. have high, high impact to me. That's how you have to stay up late, late at night and think. <sighs> I, so share worthy, right? So in buzz building phase, right? Whether that's pre-launch, pre-order, whatever. And even like events, like creating events that people want to share, people want to talk about. Um, I don't have an answer here. I, you know what? Fuck. I don't even have a question here. I'm just, this is where you said creative and this is where my head has been at. Like how, what? Well, but, but you- in that small, you know, you, you had your, your other diagrams before I'm a Venn diagram guy, right? So there's this creative and impactful overlay. Okay. Overlay. I've okay. seen a lot of creative stuff. Yeah. Like I had some, I've had, I mean, cause I get a lot of books sent to me, books sent to me with a, with like brownies. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Wait, there's the weed in those brownies because that's impactful. <laughs> well, it, not a cookbook. I'm like, okay, you got my attention. Everybody likes brownies, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What does that have to do with your book? Like, like it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't add up. Yeah. Well, you know, you you are speaking with somebody that measures retention from for courses and learning programs, and also I'm a revenue human for life. Like there is nothing. Um, everything's about the numbers and impactful. But you're right. So you're right. Well said too. <sighs> oh my gosh. Okay. So why I think do you have any final thoughts on like. Actually, I do have one final question for anyone that any aspiring thought leaders. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of me wants to talk shit on all the white noise and all the posers, um, but I think it would be more impactful to get your your wisdom on on those that are trying to do it the right way. Like, what would what would you say to someone that is at the beginning of that journey? Yeah. I mean, what, what I would say is just like, listen, you can make up the long list of excuses of why you haven't gotten started and you're not a writer unless you write, you're not a thought leader unless you're putting out thought leadership. So, so stop thinking and start doing, and, and you might need some thick skin, by the way, there might be some stuff you put out there that you think is brilliant and there's crickets. There might be, you know, you might get feedback. That's not beautiful. Those are all good things. What I would say though is and and this is you mentioned you listened to the 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 tom peters episode yeah so so i had an amazing opportunity to interview tom peters i think it was about a year and change ago and he's been one of my like superheroes forever so normally you know i get all sorts of amazing amazing people on 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 our podcast and i was like you know somebody said well who who should be on that you 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 never got that you really want it was a really short list for me so i'm like i'm gonna get tom so i got tom because i knew someone that knew someone whatever and what I, the debate I had with him offline was, hey, I remember distinctly in 1997 when the brand new issue of Fast Company landed on my desk, um, Google Magazine, for those of you under you know a certain age, right? And, the, and it looked like the Tide logo and whatever. And just so Tom was sort of the father of the personal brand. Interesting. However, when that launched in the 90s, when I look back on it now, there was no alignment between the, the personal brand was all about me. The brand you had nothing to do with Peter is an SVP of, or a CEO of it was me full stop. So I could build the brand you by wearing a purple bow tie. 
I could build the brand you by being the guy that brings cinnamon buns to every meeting, like irrelevant, stupid things. But in an absence of anybody standing out, Peter, the purple pot tie guy, people would remember good, bad or ugly. They go, oh, yeah, every meeting. Yeah, that's the dude with the purple, like goofy. OK, we're done with that crap now. Right. So what I said to Tom is, isn't thought leadership really personal branding? I don't know what number we're up to 5.0, where it's a representative of who you are and what you think and what you say and what you believe in that could be perfectly aligned to the position that you have today and the added superpower of being transportable to come with you to the next gig and the next gig and the next gig. And I guarantee you, if someone's looking to hire Amy and all things being equal, credentials, experience, blah, 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 you've got a deep, rich body of thought leadership and your competitors don't, you're going to win because the company gets that for free. Like right. why? The, why wouldn't they? Right. right. That makes perfect sense. And I like wrote down listeners, this is what stop thinking and start doing. I'm saying this and repeating it to, to myself too. stop thinking and start doing like, and can we talk about the like irony on that one? Like you fucking Atlantis <laughs> here said. Right. Yeah. I, that's, <laughs> that is so great that's so great okay so here we are final 10 minutes um what is the most uncomfortable conversation that you've ever had to have in a revenue context right so this is somebody bringing their you know thought leadership business model to market um clients prospects employees hiring managers boss whatever dealer's choice but the one that kept you up most at night peter <laughs> or the one that you think about the most, but it's for real, well, like the real uh, one. I had, well, I don't know if that's uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, the one that comes to mind and it might not be most uncomfortable, but it was the most, one of the most difficult or most troubling. When I worked with uh, Keith Ferrazzi at Never Eat Alone, we had an opportunity to get Keith on QVC. So back, this is like 15 years ago, mm-hmm. we knew some folks there, blah, blah, blah. It was a very big opportunity. And they had modeled out for us, like, get them on half hour. We've got the book. We'll create some stuff, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, whatever, $2 million in revenue in 30 days. Okay. For somebody who was running a, a training and development company, a speaking company, that's a lot of that's canola. a lot of money. Right? Yeah. Right. And um, so we had the opportunity and, you know, we were just starting. We didn't have a run rate of 2 million for on that line of business yet. It was six months into it. So Keith said to me, Hey, you know, figure it out and, and decide as you will. Great. So I'm struggling with this, struggling with this because simultaneously we were making our money was based on the strategy that I developed, which is, okay, let's, let's stick to the fortune 500 B2B sales side of the house. And I had just closed a deal with, I won't name the company, the the CFO of a top six global bank. And they committed to us for something like, I don't know what, a couple hundred thousand dollars from a a small pilot that we did that was going to launch. And we actually liked the guy. He's a great guy. He'd come out to dinner with us and he started as a fan of the book and we became friends and on and on and on. And I'm struggling with this QVC thing and we're starting to kill it in corporate. So we're doing business and financial services and technology and it's working, but it's not working quickly because of the sale. I mean, the sales cycles, as you know, are what they are. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm on the road somewhere. I don't know where. And I have one of those Westin moments. And that's when you wake up in a hotel and you look around, you go, I'm at the Westin, but I don't know if it's Denver. Where city, which city. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I recognize the bedspread. So I'm definitely (laughs) Westin, but I don't know if there's going to be a mountain or a river out the window. Yeah. 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 You know, and I get up and I had this dream. And the dream was that the client who I just signed this deal with, the CFO of the bank, 
called me and he's screaming at me and yelling at me. And he's, you MF, da, 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 da. I'm like, what's going on? What's wrong? What's wrong? He, and he's telling me, I couldn't sleep last night. So I turned on QVC and there you guys were hawking this piece of crap for $199 that I just spent 300 grand on. Mm. So that was my sign to say, okay, this QVC thing, which didn't sit well with me. I had the data, but I needed to put it together and pull the trigger. So I go downstairs, have breakfast with Keith. And he says, do you, what do you ever do with the QVC thing? Do you ever make a decision? Yeah, it's a couple of weeks. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do it. And he was like, okay, because it was my, I, I ran that side of the house. And he's like, do you mind, you know, let me ask you why. I'm like, oh yeah, I had a dream about so-and-so. And I didn't, I forgot to tell him the story. I'm like, I just had a dream about Fred. And he's like, yeah, yeah, and? <laughs> so then I told him the rest of the story. He's like, okay, I get it. I'm a little bit. Uh, Still a big number to walk away from. It's a big number to work away from. And I'm a little bit unsure if we should just do that based on a dream, but you know, so be it. Um, and I had the data as well. So maybe it was like leading, you know, don't lead with the dream. <laughs> and I still think it was the right decision. Wait, wait, so just so we're clear, was the hard conversation, was it the dream conversation or was it that you made a, a very serious business decision based no, I think the harder conversation was that the client was yelling at me in the dream. Oh, okay. I mean, they both sounded pretty, pretty tired, pretty uh, exhausting yeah. to me, but that's excellent and smart. I agree with that. That would have not played well um, if that scenario went out. Like, I would be, I'm thinking, like, I would be pissed if I spent a couple of hundreds of thousands of dollars on something that, you know, was, yeah, on TV for way less. Okay. Um, last one, final piece of advice for our listeners about uncomfortable conversations. Oh, I mean, I think the, the, the thing from my experience, which is, this is not my professional domain, but the problem with uncomfortable conversations is they're uncomfortable mm -hmm. and we don't have them soon enough. Right. So typically what happens is we leave ourselves, you know, the frog boiling in the water. Oh, geez, I got to tell Amy this. I mean, you know, think about the worst conversation you've had, whether it's a breakup, quitting your job, firing someone, whatever, whatever, whatever the more time you, and I'm not, I'm not advocating being impulsive, but the more time you think and think and think and think and procrastinate and procrastinate and procrastinate, you know, we all know that person we need to let go and nobody ever regrets doing it too soon. Mm -hmm. Right. I, or at least in my experience, it's always like, oh, okay. The conversation wasn't fun, but I, why didn't I do this six months ago? Mm -hmm. So, you know, suck it up and do it would be my, uh, <laughs> my, my answer. To excellent. Excellent advice. All right, Peter, how can people find you? Yeah. So then go to the website, thoughtleadershipleverage.com, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, the show, uh, or you the can show. email me directly. Yeah. The, yeah. The podcast leveraging thought leadership, uh, or you can just email me. It's Peter at thoughtleadershipleverage.com, which is sort of quaint, but it's actually my email address. So. And and listeners, if anyone is, it, it does end up emailing um, Peter. I just want you to know you will not have a good time at all. It's very dry human being, like no laughing. Um, there's no bullshitting involved. Like I, I'm just tossing that out there. So if you like to have fun. You wish for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So Peter, any, any big things coming out that you want to plug real fast or are we good? No, I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not uh, uh, in the plugging business. Necessarily. No, well, me either. I'm just. I'm tossing it out there. All right. Well, then, thank you, thank you, thank you for for your time, um, for making the time for us, and for sharing your your wisdom so freely with us. You know, whippersnappers coming up. 
<laughs> through the ranks. Um, and I hope you had as much fun as I did. And thank you for, for doing what you do, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. And to, great. and to our listeners, truth, love, and joy friends. Thank you as well for hanging around for the remainder of the show and happy selling. Bye Peter. So that was Peter Winnick of Thought Leadership Leverage, host of the Thought Leadership Podcast. Anyone interested in becoming a trusted voice of logic and reason to their target audience should, to Peter's point, absolutely stop thinking and start doing. And also definitely check out Peter's show. Uh, Lots of amazing pearls of wisdom coming down from there. And that wraps another installment of the Revenue Reel Hotline. Thank you for hanging out with us today, friends, through the remainder of the conversation. It means the world. If you found any value in things discussed, do tell a friend. I take that as the highest compliment. Truth, love, and joy, all. Happy selling.